teams. Um, for those of you that have been here a little while, you know that I get two study leaves a year. So let me tell you how amazing God is. So October of 2020, I went on study leave and planned to preach the book of Revelation from January through June, Psalms in the summer, and then starting James in September of 2021. God knew what he was doing. We're going to look at the first four verses of the book of James today, and they are about trials and suffering. Maybe God knows a lot of stuff. <laughs> Maybe he is in control. Maybe he knows what I need even before I know that I need it. That mass was in my body last year. God knew exactly what he wanted me to be thinking about when I would be able to return and open the word of God to you and with you. So we're going to look at the book of James. I'm going to try to set up the book before I read these first four verses so that those of you that like taking notes or want to think about what James is all about, I want to tell you four things on the front end. Even if you're not understanding all of them this morning, I'll repeat them. And I hope that they will give you a framework by which to understand our study in the book of James. So here is the first thing. The key verse to understand James is found in chapter 4 and verse 6. It says this, God resists or opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's the gospel in one sentence. Without Jesus, two primary things stand out. God's resistance and our pride. With Jesus, two prominent things stand out. Grace and humility. The gospel in one sentence. So if you want a way to think about the entire book of James, chapter 4, verse 6. Second, I want to give you the main idea of the book. If that's the key verse, then here's the main idea. God writes James so that we can understand a description of a cruciform life. You ever heard that word before? Cruciform? God gives us the book of James because he is describing for us a cruciform life, a life shaped by the cross. That's really important. So these five chapters are describing for us what a life looks like that's shaped by what Jesus has done. So here's what's on the menu. Here's a one-word summary for each chapter. Number one, endurance, chapter one. Number two, authenticity. Number three, discipline. Number four, contentment. And finally, chapter five, starting around verse seven, anticipating the future. So what does a cruciform life look like? It looks like endurance. It looks like authenticity. It looks like discipline. It looks like contentment. And it looks like anticipating the future. You got that? I'll cover these again and again. But I want to give you a framework. Three, 
This means we need to think about motivation. You see, one of the problems that we have, especially as Americans, especially as Westerners, especially living in a culture that is dominated by individualism, is that we have a wrong conception about motivation. Most of us read the book of James and think, oh, here's my new to-do list. Let's go do it. So you need to think about, and I need to think about, and we need to think about motivation. We love to be motivated by deficit. And what I want to show you in the book is that James is actually motivating us by grace. We all know what it's like to be motivated by deficit, right? You don't have this. You don't have that. You need to do this. You're so woefully inept at that. Therefore, do this, get that. I want you to understand that God motivates us by grace. Here's what I mean. In and of ourselves, we have nothing. But because of Jesus, we have everything. So God is constantly motivating us to live, not based upon our deficit, but based upon the fullness of Jesus. I'm acting like I'm already preaching, and I'm just giving you the introduction before I read anything. <laughs> you can tell I haven't done this in like 12 weeks. So remember, think about, wrestle with how much in your life you are motivated by deficit. And when you come to God's word, when you come to the book of James, let's really think about being motivated by grace. Let's think about being motivated out of what we are in Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to be left just looking at ourselves and focusing on ourselves and thinking that God is a self-help and thinking that the gospel is what God has done to get us in. Now we got to make this relationship better and we need to make ourselves better. And you know where that leads? Guilt and shame perpetually. But to be motivated by grace means that we're thinking about Jesus and how by God's grace we're going to be more like him. We want to be more like him. I'll work that out in the weeks to come because I got two examples I'll give you, but I'll save that. Four, this is the last one. How does this fit into the vision of our church? How does James fit into our vision? What's our vision? Love God, love people, and love the city or love place. So how does James fit into that? Well, you've heard this before, but I'm gonna say it again because I need to hear it, and I hope you haven't grown tired of it. How does this book fit into our vision? This way. God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. Take that in. Those little shifts, those little shifts can change everything about our lives. God doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. And I hope that if you'll meditate and think about those four things I just worked out, that you'll see how they all fit and interrelate. So that's my introduction to the reading. So let's look at James chapter one, verses one through four. This is God's word. 
This is part of the greatest story that's ever told. It tells us about, tells us about how everything was created, what happened, what the answer is, and where everything is going. It's a great story. Listen to this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. It's true. We can bank our entire lives on it. So we ask, Lord, that as you've said, you, Jesus, have prayed for us, that we might grow in our understanding, that we might grow in likeness and holy, likeness to you and, and holiness. You have prayed for us. So we ask that you would continue to make good on those prayers. We know you will. Holy Spirit, thank you for using your word in our lives. Don't leave us alone until the Lord Jesus is more and more irresistible to us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Here's a four-word summary of these first four verses. Pressure is a privilege. Pressure is a privilege. Do you all know what it's like to be under pressure? Anybody ever had a deadline in here? I mean a real deadline where you were losing sleep, really nervous about whether or not you could meet that deadline, maybe even thinking it was impossible. You know what it's like to have to do a hard thing where people won't like you for doing the right thing, but the right thing is really hard to do? You ever been in that kind of situation? You know what it's like to feel pressure? Where you feel the pull of knowing what to do that's right, but at the same time you feel an equal pull that says, eh, take a shortcut, you can cover this up. You can do this and no one's gonna find out about it. You know what it's like to feel pressure? I'm sure you do. All of us do. Pressure to perform. Pressure to do the right thing. Those words, pressure is a privilege, was said by a woman named Billie Jean King. She meant those words in the context of competition, which is how most of us live our lives during the week, right? Everything seems to be competition. It seems to me that God is saying the same thing in these first four verses, except with this profound difference. It's not about competition. God is telling us what life with Jesus in a fallen world is going to be like. What life with Jesus looks like in a fallen world is this. Pressure is a privilege. Let's look at these verses together. Here's the roadmap of where we're going to understand those four words. To understand pressure is a privilege, here's where we're going. Meeting trials, knowing, and maturity. That's the roadmap of where we're going. 
So let's jump in and talk about meeting trials. Trials, when God writes about trials here, he says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through various trials. Did you see that in verse one? Excuse me, in verse two, see that? Trials are facing things that are really difficult, facing challenges, facing suffering, enduring suffering, enduring, like literally experiencing challenges. Can you relate to that? In other words, a trial is not, oh, Facebook and the gram are down for the whole day. I don't know if I'm going to live. A trial is not, Wi-Fi is not working in my house. What am I going to do? A, a trial is, a trial is not showing up at McDonald's at 1035 to order something from the breakfast menu, but it ends at 1030. That's not a trial. What God is saying here with this idea of trials is this, pressure from the outside that reveals what is within. That's what God's saying. Count it all joy, brothers, when you endure various trials. When you are living your life in the world and you feel the pressure from the outside that is enough to expose what's on the inside. And what it exposes on the inside is all kinds of dysfunction. Things that you want to hide, things that I want to hide, things that you don't want to know about or just want to cover up. That's what God is talking about here. Trials are an everyday thing. We all go through trials. We all go through challenges. We all will endure suffering. And if you're not enduring that right now, you probably know someone who is. And what is happening and what they feel inside is this, that there's so much pressure from the outside that's cracking them open. And it's exposing all of their dysfunction and shortcomings and inabilities and fear. I can relate to that. Can you? We meet trials. And notice that the text says, not if, but it says, when. When, when you meet trials. Well, what's next? Well, there's something that God says that we know. Count it all joy when you go through various trials, literally knowing knowing that these trials are meant to produce steadfastness. In other words, as you're going through life and feeling the pressure of living in a fallen world and it's exposing things about your life, it means that those trials have a broader purpose and a bigger picture than just trying to endure the pain and the suffering and the discomfort and the loss and the grief and the frustration and all that comes with trials, helplessness, knowing that you're not in control, all those things that are revealed when you go through a trial and it cracks you open. It's meant to produce something 
it, there's a bigger picture going on when we go through trials. It's meant to help us get perspective. I'll tell you three things that I've thought about. I had a longer list than this, but I cut it down to three. There are three things that I know that trials produce in our lives. And I certainly have experienced part of all three of these. Um, the first one is this, humility. I don't know how people get humbled. It's, it's very rare for someone to gain humility without going through suffering and trials. Second, and I've experienced this. You never realize how much people love you and care for you and pray for you until you go through trials. That's been my experience. I didn't know to the degree. Do you know what it means to go through something where you feel cracked open and to have people say to you relentlessly, I'm praying for you? Is there anything I can do for you? Or even to literally say the words, I love you? I wouldn't have known the depth of those things had I not be going through what I'm going through. Here's the third thing that seems to be produced in trials and in suffering. Look, add to this list, say, eh, I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. Think about it. Meditate on it. This is not exhaustive by any means. The third one is, and I'm sure I probably read this somewhere at some point, through trials you find out who's boss. It's that, it's that time when you realize the way that you look at reality is woefully inadequate. It's that time when you begin to realize, you know, maybe some of the assumptions I had about God were wrong. It's that time in which you realize some of the assumptions I had about what life was gonna be like in this world was wrong. Some of the things I thought about myself and assumed about myself were just wrong. It's a time when you come to grips with the deeper things of life and there is a tremendous tendency when you're going through that kind of pressure to think about, well, maybe the way that I'm looking at reality has been more focused on myself than what I ever imagined. Now, as much as those may be fun to think about, the specific thing that's mentioned in these verses that trials produce is this, steadfastness. You notice that? It's right there in the text. Trials produce steadfastness. Another way to say this word is endurance. Trials produce endurance in us. And when God says that trials produce Endurance or steadfastness, God is not describing passive submission. He's saying that trials produce staying power. In other words, if you can think back to 9-11, do you remember the, fire, the FDNY? Do you remember the fire department in New York City when the towers came down? Have you, do you remember the stories of the firemen who stayed. They stayed. 
and many of them lost their lives. They were enduring, practicing what they had been taught, fulfilling their calling. They stayed. Remember that? Had a very good friend of mine, if you need a leadership analogy, I have a very good friend of mine who said this to me a number of years ago, not too long ago, because I still remember it. Leadership, Dave, is like an elephant leaning against the wall. Stay. Keep leaning. The other analogy could be a bull in a china shop, right? Bad leadership. Here's a better one. This is the best illustration I have for you. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The greatest act of love in the world is when Jesus was on the cross and he looked down at guilty people like you and me and he could have said, come up here, this is your cross to bear. This is your sin to atone for. This is your wrath to endure. But what did he do? He stayed. No hope without it. And God is saying that what is produced in us is steadfastness, it is endurance, it is staying power. In other words, it doesn't matter how much is exposed through trials and suffering. It doesn't matter what is exposed through challenges. We can still pray and believe and say, Lord, help my unbelief. We can cling to him knowing that he is clinging to us. But notice what else the text says. Let steadfastness or let endurance have its full effect. See that? That you might be perfect, uh, complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see that? That's a real question. Do you see that in there? I don't want you to think I'm making this stuff up here, all right? God is saying that through the trials and through us being cracked open, that he is working maturity into us as we endure. Now, I know that those three phrases might intimidate you a little bit. Wait, God's saying that I'm gonna be perfect. He's saying that I'm gonna be complete. Uh, he's saying that I'm gonna be lacking in nothing. Well, how do these all fit? Well, they're actually all building blocks that are communic communicating to us the same thing, just from different angles. They're all saying that we will be mature. We will grow in maturity. Not that it's saying that when we are to be perfect, that it means that we're gonna be without error. It's not that. It means that we will be whole. It means that there are parts of our lives that need to be addressed. And through suffering and through trials, those very things are being addressed. And it means that God is changing us so that we are becoming more complete. We are becoming more whole. We are, in the end, lacking nothing. We are Growing in Christ-likeness. In other words, to say it again, we're becoming more and more mature. I watched an interview recently with a guy, a native North Carolinian. 
Um, you might have heard of him, maybe not. Michael Jordan? I don't, I don't know, maybe not. Um, and, and for those of you that don't like sports, this is not about stats. This is not about the GOAT discussion, okay? This is about story. This is about life. This is about his life. And he was talking about growing. And you know what he said recently? That he realized in order for him to grow, he had to die to a part of himself. That in order for him to grow, he had to lose a part of himself so that he fit with other people. In other words, maturity is not you improving your skill set. Maturity is not you becoming more independent from other people. Maturity is not you becoming the best version of yourself. That's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible talks about maturity, it means that we are growing in Christ-likeness that possess and display the fruit of the Spirit, that we are becoming a people who are more loving, Christ-like in their love, who are more joyful and Christ-like in our joyfulness and patience and all the other things. And the only way that's gonna happen in God's economy is that we must Endure trials. And we can harden ourselves to that and go through trials and think, you know what, I don't really deserve this. You can fight against it. You can try to have some bizarre power of positive thinking if you want. It won't get you anywhere. Yes, you can grow in bitterness going through trials. Absolutely true. Most of us know that, right? By our own experience. But what God is doing is he is making us more like Christ so that we will let go of the bitterness, let go of the self-centeredness. We would learn to die to ourselves and what we think of ourselves and our power and our skills and our abilities and our accomplishments and that we would be found more and more in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes death. We have to die to ourselves I mean, you, you, I've had to die to myself a lot over the last few months. And it's not going to stop anytime soon. And I don't like it. But it's what God's doing in my life. And it's not just that I would be mature, but look at what else the text tells us is being produced that is a byproduct of this endurance or steadfastness. It's in the first little phrase of verse two. Count it all joy. Now, please pay attention. It doesn't, God does not tell you, consider your trials joy. God does not say in, you know, that you have to enjoy your trials. And let me tell you, I'm really thankful about that because I'm not enjoying mine. And my hunch is you're probably not enjoying yours either. And God doesn't tell us that we're supposed to equate trials with joy. Look at what he says. Count, what's the word? It. Right? A little bit further down. <clears throat> Let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words... What brings joy into our lives is that we know that God is at work. 
There is a process by which God is taking the gospel deeper into our lives. He's taking the endurance of Jesus and the steadfastness of Jesus and pushing that into us through trials. So our joy comes not because I have to endure chemotherapy starting soon. The joy comes because God is at work through every difficult circumstance to make me more like Jesus. That is real joy. The joy is found in recognizing that there's a much bigger perspective of what is happening in my life and that God is in the center and he's doing something through everything. That means that as a follower of Jesus, I should never think that if I just had enough faith, I could avoid all this stuff. If I was just a better person, if I just was more obedient, that God wouldn't do this to me. That is absolutely the wrong way to think, and if you've been taught that, I am so sorry. Because if you really buy into that, I don't know how in the world you could explain Jesus himself, who has been more obedient than me or you put together, and he still went through trials, various kinds, and suffering, right? Well, we need to wrap up. So let's do it this way. Let's not forget about verse one. I know it's easy to read those verses and think, or read verse one and think, well, this just seems like useless information. It's not. Matter of fact, let me show you how it's actually an incredible test case. Follow me. James writes this book. James is the half-brother of Jesus. That means that while James was growing up, his older brother, Jesus, was too. That means that he saw Jesus eat. He knew what it was like for Jesus to sling a hammer working with his dad. He knew what it was like for him to be truly as he is. That's what James saw growing up. And what we know about James later in his life, you can read about this in the book of Acts, chapter 15, you'll find that James was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Yes, it seems like he held a more prominent place than Peter or John or even Paul. He was looked to as the anchor guy for the church in Jerusalem. And let me tell you how much that meant because we're so far removed, you may think, well, that just sounds like a great title. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about titles here. In Acts chapter seven, you remember what happened? A guy named Stephen was stoned to death. You know what happened in Acts chapter eight? Persecution started against the followers of Christ. That's why James writes this to the 12 tribes of the dispersion because he's identifying his audience as primarily Jewish that was living in Jerusalem and some of them spread. 
Yes, James is taking the title for God's people, the church in the Old Testament, and applying it to the new and saying, this is God's people. He only has one people. And James was there when Stephen was stoned. And James was there when the persecution followed. And people started dispersing from Jerusalem and going out to Judea and Samaria and then ultimately to Greenville, North Carolina. But we also read this in the scriptures. In John chapter seven, you'll find that John records for us that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. What? So James grew up with Jesus. As an adult, he was looked to as the leader in the Jerusalem church as they went through incredible persecution. But John says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him? What in the world happened? How did James go from not believing in Jesus to verse one where he calls Jesus Lord? How did that happen? Well, we find in the historical records of Jesus' literal appearing to people after he rose from the dead that Jesus appeared to 500 and this person and James. That encounter must have changed James's life. And I'm sure it wasn't the only thing that changed his life. Can you imagine what Jesus would have said to his own brother on that day when he was alive from the dead? What in the world could Jesus have told James that would prepare him to minister to Jews in Jerusalem that would face persecution? What in the world, what kind of message could James receive that could radically change him and prepare him for his life's calling? What could do that? The gospel. That's it. What if, suggestion, what if Jesus told James the story of the father that had two sons and said, James, James, I'm the older brother. I'm the one who is the faithful older brother, James. I'm the one that lived for you, James. I'm the one that went to the cross for you, James. I'm the one who rose from the dead for you, James. You think that might change your life? I hope you can say it has. Roughly the year 62, church history tells us, less than 20 years after this book was written, persecution was going on still in Jerusalem. Eight years before the fall of Jerusalem, James was taken captive, taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and thrown off. He landed on the ground, broke a bunch of bones, but was still alive. And people started coming to him and beating him until finally one person came with what we'll call a Louisville slugger and took him out. And you know what was heard 
from James's lips as he was being beaten? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Where, where do you think he heard that? The guy that writes, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you endure various trials. Because these trials will produce endurance and let endurance have its full effect that you may be completely mature, whole, like Christ. Live those words out. In other words, the point of this sermon is not to try to be like James. It's to realize the one who changed James. The one who did everything for us. And by the Spirit's power, the one whom we will be like. And friends, that's what brings us to the table. On the night in which Jesus 